Coming up on Tech Nation, remember Love Canal? There were human heroes, from congressional aides to scientists to determined housewives and mothers. It's quite a story. Journalist and NPR contributor Keith O'Brien joins me to talk about his book, Paradise Falls. Then, new science leads to understanding natural repair mechanisms in the brain. I speak with Dr. Mark Litton from Athera Pharma about their efforts in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's dementia. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Every country at war seeks to develop new weapons, ones against which the enemy has no defense. For Japan during World War II, the idea was to build underwater aircraft carriers. In 2013, I spoke with John Gahagan about his book, Operation Storm. It's a fascinating concept. It, it's so counterintuitive. Uh, nobody would really think that you could ever build anything that would carry aircraft underwater like a giant aircraft carrier. But the Japanese really did need some kind of killer app, as you say. And particularly, uh, Admiral Yamamoto, who was the uh, thinker or the designer of Pearl Harbor, he needed a follow-up punch to that. And he knew he'd never be able to slip another carrier fleet past the U.S., so he decided in his own, in his own creative way uh, to design a f- squadron of underwater aircraft carriers. Well, these were submarines that acted as aircraft carriers. I mean, 400 feet long, that's longer than a football field. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there was never another submarine that was built that was longer until 1961. So they were really remarkable to think that in 1944 they could build an aircraft carrier or a gigantic submarine that was actually almost 401 feet long. And how wide was it? Uh, I can't remember exactly what the diameter was, but they were like taking two subs and uh, basically soldering them together because they needed a large stable platform in order to launch planes off the top. So one, the width of one sub wouldn't do that. They really took two subs like side by side and then uh, soldered them together. And if you've ever been on a, a normal, if you will, uh, aircraft carrier, there's a catapult at, at, at one end and, and you hold the plane down and you rev it really up really, really fast and then you let go of those wires and you catapult the plane. You basically throw the plane off the deck and you hope it comes up and flies. Well, it's the same thing for these submarines. The E-400 class had the longest catapults in the Imperial Japanese Navy. They were 85 feet long, which is a remarkable length to launch anything off a submarine. Uh, and uh, I think the biggest challenge for the designers of the submarine were to come up with a platform that was big enough and stable enough to be able to launch three planes in a row because each one of these subs carried three sizable attack planes. Uh, and to do that uh, in a short enough period of time and not be spotted by the enemy because, of course, uh, the longer a submarine is on the surface, the more danger it is of being spotted by the enemy. So the whole concept behind the E-400 class of submarines was to kind of stealthily creep up to the American coastline, surface, launch three of these planes in a hurry, and then go back, submerge back underneath the water and disappear. 
so that the American people would be stunned to suddenly wake up and find originally the plan was for 44 of these planes to be launched over New York City and Washington, D.C. And Admiral Yamamoto thought, hoped that that would be, um, I guess, a big enough shock to force America to sue for an early peace. They weren't just conceiving of these. They built them. They built them. They, They originally planned to build 18 of them. Uh, But, of course, as the war went on, uh, uh, materials became harder and harder to get to Japan. So they ultimately cut back the number of of these uh, E-400-class subs to five. But building five of them was still a significant accomplishment. And, of course, the remarkable thing was it took them almost the entire war to complete these submarines. But they were actually on their way to complete their mission when the war ended. So this just wasn't some pipe dream that the Imperial Japanese Navy came up with. They built these things, they launched these things, and they deployed them. And there were three SARIN, that's S-E-I-R-A-N, SARIN aircraft on each of those. And you can actually see a SARIN aircraft. You can visit one. Where is it? Yes, um, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in their Udar Hazy Center, which is near uh, Dallas International Airport in Virginia, has restored the only existing surviving SARIN This 2013 Tech Nation interview features John Gahagan. His book is Operation Storm, Japan's Top Secret Submarines and its Plan to Change the Course of World War II. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with journalist and NPR contributor Keith O'Brien. You might know him from his earlier books, Fly Girls and Outside Shot. Today, we're talking about the human experience of Love Canal. His book is Paradise Falls, the true story of an environmental catastrophe. Then, enticing the natural repair mechanisms of the brain in search of a treatment for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's dementia. We'll hear about the work of Athera Pharma. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Keith O'Brien. Well, Keith, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Now, some of our listeners remember the name which the media gave the story, but those listeners were very young as well, and the details may have escaped them. It's called Love Canal. Take us there. Where is Love Canal, and what was it like in the 1960s before it made news? before we got into the 1970s, when I think it was called the LaSalle neighborhood. As you said, uh, this was a neighborhood on the east side of Niagara Falls, right out on the town uh, city limits. Uh, It was a a desirable place to live, a a community of about 1,000 families, black and white. And this neighborhood, as you said, was called LaSalle. But decades earlier, unbeknownst to the people who lived there. A man named William T. Love 
had attempted to carve a canal into the earth. This was going to be a cut through uh, that was going to stretch about 11 miles uh, from the upriver side of the Niagara River, the upriver side of the waterfalls, and then rejoin the river on the downriver side uh, just before Lake Ontario. And William T. Love was a, was a bit of an entrepreneur and a bit of a grifter, and he made it about a half a mile before he ran out of money and willpower. And there his canal sat, this abandoned canal to nowhere sat for decades. And in the 1940s, this land was acquired by a company named Hooker Chemical, which was at points in the 20th century, both the largest employer in Niagara Falls and the largest industrial taxpayer in Niagara Falls. Hooker in many ways with its tax dollars really kept the lights on, you know, in the city and, and funded the snow plows in the winter. It was a, a, a very prominent place to work. And Hooker acquires this land. And for about a decade, they dump about 21,000 tons of chemical waste and residue into the old canal, the Love Canal. And then in 1952, the city of Niagara Falls, the Board of Education, approaches Hooker with an offer. Uh, the city's growing. The population is pushing east out toward those city limits, out toward that old canal. And the Board of Education wants to build a school in that part of town to accommodate these folks. And um, they inquire about the, the landfill, the canal. And Hooker initially, you know, rejects this idea in internal documents uh, that I found. They you know, say that this land is not suitable for such a purpose. But over the course of that spring, even just in the course of just a few weeks, um, the tone of those memos begins to change. And uh, they change in part for one reason. As one executive says uh, that spring, uh, the Love Canal property is rapidly becoming a liability. You know, they're aware that the developments are increasingly uh, getting closer to this land. And so despite their own misgivings and their own warnings to the city of Niagara Falls and the Board of Education, Hooker does uh, gift the land to the board for a dollar. And up goes that school and around it grows this neighborhood. And these, these secrets then are, are effectively buried for a couple of decades before they start to leach to the surface. Well, before we go any further, what I really want to make sure people understand is that uh, if you've read about the Love Canal before, if you have know anything about it, you on earth through a number of ways, an enormous amount of new information. Let's start there to understand what's filling in this story. Well, yeah, thank you, Moira. I agree. You know, uh, no book had ever been written that captured this story as a human narrative. And, and that's what it was, you know? I mean, imagine today learning that your kid's school and the neighborhood around which uh, your home had been built uh, was essentially built around this chemical landfill. You know, and imagine the crisis that would cause within your family, at your kitchen table, the discussions you would have about how you might escape. And that is what happened in this neighborhood. And I wanted to capture 
that human narrative, this story of people uh, fighting to save their families, fighting to escape their own homes. And, and it, it is, really is, in, in my opinion, you know, an, an ensemble cast of, of folks who, through a disparate number of ways, come together to fight uh, to escape these homes. And in the span of two years, they will go from being ignored, completely ignored by their local officials, small-time Niagara Falls officials, school officials, to having the ear of President Jimmy Carter in the White House. And, and they will find themselves staring down uh, one of the most powerful corporate executives in America at that time, uh, Armand Hammer, who was the CEO of Occidental Petroleum, uh, which had by that time acquired Hooker Chemical. And what was the new information you got? How did you get it? What was it? So, you know, as you might imagine, there are thousands of records related to Love Canal. And, and many of these, you know, can be found at established archives and universities. Um, but as I went out and started interviewing some of my main protagonists, I learned that they had kept things, their own records, their own documents. And in some cases, Moira, they had kept boxes upon boxes of documents. You know, uh, I interviewed a woman named Bonnie Casper. Bonnie was not from Niagara Falls. She was a congressional aide to the congressman from that district, a man named John LaFalse. And John LaFalse in 1977 was a very green congressman. He'd only been there for three years, uh, but he would go on to serve the city of Niagara Falls for some three decades. Uh, and Bonnie Casper had come to Washington to change the world and, and work for John LaFalse and, and do that work as all congressional aides do. And she realized pretty early on that it, that was difficult to do. But in 1977, a newly hired small-time bureaucrat uh, for the city of Niagara Falls called Bonnie. And he, he said he was coming to Washington. He wanted to meet with her because there was a problem on the east side of town in the LaSalle neighborhood. And this small-time bureaucrat, again, new to, new to the job, uh, alerted Bonnie to this buried chemical landfill and, and these problems now seeping to the surface, chemical drums at times cresting out of the ground within proximity of that school. And, and Bonnie, of course, is alarmed and, and, and begins to push this rock up the hill. And in my book, Paradise Falls, it recounts how she does that and how a, a, a small-time legislative aide, congressional aide, could, could make a difference. And when I went and met with Bonnie, in early 2020, just before the pandemic, I, I flew to Washington and I and I went to her office. And Bonnie these days is a is a real estate agent. She is not uh, a politician <laughs> or a, a political aide. And she asks where this land comes from. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and you know Bonnie was happy to do the interview, and she said she had a lot of records, and she brought them to her office that day. And I underestimated what she had. She had. You know, file after file after file, thick files of, of Love Canal records from 1977, 78, 79. And then there was another woman, too, whose, whose records were very critical uh, to this story. Uh, her name was Beverly Pagan. And Beverly, just like Bonnie, was not from the neighborhood. Uh, she lived 25 minutes away in Buffalo. 
But Beverly Pagan was a PhD level biologist and scientist. And, and just as important, Beverly Pagan was a mother. And, and so when these problems begin to surface in the neighborhood in Niagara Falls, she goes up there and starts to investigate them for herself. And, and this puts Beverly Pagan quickly in a difficult position uh, because the medical institute she worked for in Buffalo was affiliated with the university at Buffalo uh, and was effectively under the umbrella of the State Department of Health. And so uh, when Beverly begins to make statements first privately and then publicly that she believes the risks of these chemicals extend much further than health officials are saying at the time, uh, she is making statements that are directly at odds with what her superiors in Albany are saying at the Department of Health. And I also interviewed Beverly and I tracked her down and I, and I met her at her house in Maine, also in early 2020, just before the pandemic. And Beverly had kept something like nine boxes of documents in storage in Maine for decades. <laughs> this could take you years to go through. <laughs> Good. And, and, but just as important as the boxes that Beverly kept was uh, a file that I found on Beverly at the State Archives in Albany. Um, you know, history of the state of New York, there have been millions of state employees. And I can tell you for a fact that not all of them get a file at the state archives. Uh, but when I punched in Beverly's name, there was a file and it said Beverly Pagan employment file. And I asked to see it, um, you know, as, as researchers do. And I was told that I could not view that file. It was, it was personal and it was private and it was sealed. So I did file a freedom of information request, and I then waited about nine months. And at the end of 2021, I received about 330 previously shielded pages related to Beverly's uh, time uh, fighting for the residents in Love Canal. And, you know, Beverly had long believed in 1978-79 as she began to speak out and began to pay a price for that at work. Beverly had believed that she was being followed. She was being watched. Uh, she even reported at the time that her mail was being opened and resealed. And in the records that I got from the state archives, I did not find evidence of those claims. But what I did find was that Beverly Pagan was being watched at the highest levels of the State Department of Health, all the way to the doorstep of the governor, powerful men in Albany, were worried about Beverly Pagan. They wanted to know where she was and who she was talking to, and, and they were watching her. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is journalist and NPR contributor Keith O'Brien. You may know him from his earlier books, Fly Girls and Outside Shot. He's here today with Paradise Falls, the true story of an environmental catastrophe. Let's get to what the residents noticed. We have the school and its play yard, and we have a big field next to it. And we have all these little houses that were built. People are thrilled to be living in these houses. And the kids all play in this big, vast yard. What happens? So people who had moved into the neighborhood in the late 50s were aware of what they called the, quote, hooker dump. Uh, they had some knowledge of that. And 
for the longtime residents of the neighborhood, uh, going way back. They even knew of little incidents. Uh, you know, at times on this land, after it was acquired by the Board of Education, there were problems. You know, um, fires broke out on this land uh, on at least one occasion. Uh, a, a buried drum exploded uh, beneath the ground. And so old time residents who had at least been there in the late 50s were aware of something. But if you moved in in the late 60s or the 70s, as many of my main protagonists did, you had no idea. There was no rider on your mortgage. There was no notification of anything. It was uh, essentially a, a buried secret that people in power in Niagara Falls knew, not just at Hooker, uh, but inside uh, City Hall. But most other people did not. And then after the blizzard of 1977 in particular, these chemicals began leaching out and causing problems in ways like never before. And people started to notice, uh, you know, and, and a reporter started to notice. And he started to write stories in the Niagara Gazette, a man named Michael Brown, who was the first reporter who really dug in on this issue. And one of my main protagonists is, is a woman named Lois Gibbs. And Lois Gibbs was, as they said at the time, a housewife, a stay-at-home mom. Um, she had two children on 101st Street in Niagara Falls. She's two blocks east of that school, that old landfill, that old canal. And, and Lois had purchased that home uh, with her husband, Harry, on his factory workers' wages from the Goodyear plant in town. And they had purchased it because of its proximity to that school and that playground. And in fact, uh, in, in late 1977, or the fall of 77, Lois's uh, oldest child, her son Michael, begins to attend kindergarten there. And within three months, uh, Michael Gibbs is suffering from seizures. And, you know, doctors tell Lois that, you know, sometimes this happens and we'll put him on medication and we'll monitor this, uh, which is a diagnosis that Lois begrudgingly accepts. But then in the spring of 1978, as Michael Brown begins to write these stories in the Niagara Gazette, Lois reads them. And she does what mothers do. You know, Lois begins to connect the dots to a problem in the outside world, to what's happening inside her house. And, and that is really where this story uh, in the neighborhood takes a turn. Lois Gibbs, Luella Kenny, Aline Thornton, there are so many mothers, seven women who had three or more miscarriages in a short period of time. The numbers just don't support it. That was Beverly Pagan's opinion uh, all along, um, the, the scientist from, from Buffalo. You know, she believed as early as November 1978, within three months of the state uh, announcing this problem, and within three months of the federal government and the White House ordering the first federal emergency in this neighborhood, Beverly Pagan is arguing uh, in Albany behind closed doors that the problem extends much further than the state is saying at that time. And to be fair to the state and to, to all parties involved here, this was unprecedented. And it was very difficult for scientists to determine where to draw the line. You know, where, where do uh, the chemicals stop and start? 
And in fact, Moira, I mean, this is still an issue today when it comes to issues of chemical contamination. You know, it is often difficult for health officials, scientists to determine where to draw that line, where it is safe and where it is not. And that was uh, an issue that was at the core of this fight um, in 1978 and 79. Now, Lois Gibbs and, and Luella Kenny and the rest, they one of the things that happens, they, okay, we'll remediate. We'll dig up this thing. Don't worry. Just stay in your houses. No problem. That was a problem, too. Right. So in August 1978, within months of Lois Gibbs learning of this issue and beginning to press this issue with uh, local officials and state officials, uh, they order, I'm sorry, they first they recommend an evacuation. And then within a couple of days of that, they order an evacuation. And, and it's ultimately ordered that 230 uh, people living right around this old canal, uh, the, this playground, this school land, uh, are going to be evacuated. And the state of New York and the federal government come to terms uh, to help buy out these homes. And, you know, just imagine for a moment being on the cusp of that evacuation zone. Imagine owning a home whose property abutted a property that was now abandoned. And imagine for a moment what that would do to you and, and your family and the discussions you would have around your kitchen table. Imagine what it would do to you to own a home that abutted a property that had been evacuated and abandoned. You know, that was an, an issue for hundreds of families in this neighborhood who lived just outside the evacuation zone and now desperately wanted to know was their home safe? Were their kids safe? And then, of course, there was the secondary economic issue. I've invested everything in this home. How am I ever going to get it out again? You know, and at the time, everybody knew you couldn't. You know, uh, real estate agents uh, would no longer bring uh, prospective buyers to the LaSalle neighborhood. Nobody wanted to buy a home anywhere close to this land. And so these these residents, uh, you know, begin to push to learn more about the problems in their neighborhood, and they begin to do their own science. Uh, you know, led by Lois Gibbs and, and Beverly Pagan, uh, they begin to conduct their own door-to-door epidemiological surveys, uh, trying to determine who is suffering from what problems where. And they ultimately present a different theory, uh, the residents do. They argue that it's not about the streets and the street signs or the street names, and those kind of borders shouldn't be considered for evacuation. It's about the home's proximity to old stream beds that used to crisscross through this canal back in the you know, 40s and 50s when it was still a ragged waterway. And they begin to argue that there are clusters of problems around these old stream beds or swales. And Lois Gibbs and Beverly Pagan will ultimately bring that argument, not just to the state of New York, uh, but to the halls of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. And they will be summoned there uh, to testify before a young congressman that, that certainly your listeners will remember. He was uh, also new to Congress, 
also very young. Uh, his name was Albert Gore Jr. from Tennessee. Journalist Keith O'Brien writes about Love Canal in his book, Paradise Falls, the true story of an environmental catastrophe. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, and Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, how do you know if an Alzheimer's drug is at least impacting the brain? We'll hear how a Therapharma does it, and you may find it surprising. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Keith O'Brien. His book is about the human experience of Love Canal. It's Paradise Falls, the true story of an environmental catastrophe. There's so much in this book, we can't possibly go into it. But one aspect that I'd like you to talk about is uh, it, it seems when we tell the story that Lois Gibbs was just moving forward here and there and they kept calling this useless housewife surveys, you know, <laughs> and things like that. Um, let's talk about what were the intimidation tactics used against Lois Gibbs and uh, and her her housewives? Well, you know, initially Lois wasn't sure she would be able to affect any kind of change. You know, Lois was, you know, not just a, a stay-at-home mom and, and a factory worker's wife. Lois had, had barely graduated from high school. And, and she was actually, before this all started, very self-conscious about her lack of education, uh, formal education, or, or, or intelligence. You know, Lois was the kind of person who wouldn't even speak up at a PTA meeting. And so it's only uh, her, her anger that forces her out of that place and forces her to speak out. And, and she does pay, you know, a real price for that advocacy in, in many ways. Um, you know, you know uh, neighbors were angry 
with Lois at times. Um, you know, for every person who believed what she was saying and also wanted to escape their homes, uh, there was someone else who didn't want Lois Gibbs speaking out because she was hurting property values. Um, you know, there was certainly there were certainly men in Albany who underestimated her, you know, again and again. Uh, and it was only after she began to make public protests, uh, and, and in fact, uh, like many uh, mothers in this neighborhood, uh, would get arrested for these public protests, that uh, people in Albany, you know, began to take her seriously. But, you know, without question, you know, the women in this story, uh, you know, faced uh, the sort of chauvinism and, and misogyny that many women faced in the 1970s and sadly still face today in many fields, you know, and, and, and Beverly Pagan, the scientist from Buffalo, uh, told me in, in interviews that she believed without question that if she had been a man and, and had presented her contradictory arguments to the other men in Albany, that her arguments would have been taken more seriously. Now, if you're wondering about the sources and references in this book, your your notes and references run to some 60 pages. So there's, it's all there. Check it out for yourself. There it is. Um, and, and, and Lois Gibbs, of course, has come to be known as the mother of the Superfund. There's so many things in this book. But what I want to know is, is what you think on two levels. What positive lessons were learned and have uh, have impacted the U.S. since that time? And what still needs to be done? Well, you mentioned the Superfund, and, and uh, that is a term that most people will be familiar with. And, and this was effectively, Love Canal was effectively the first Superfund site and the impetus for this legislation in the first place. Um, you know, in late 1978, as Lois is beginning to rally other residents and Beverly Pagan is doing her science, uh, EPA administrators are starting to put together a sweeping legislative package uh, that would give the EPA authority and also funding, funding from the polluters themselves. Uh, that was the core philosophy of the Superfund uh, to, to clean up. Uh, sites like Love Canal. And it was discussed in Washington that you'd need a, a, a large fund of money, a super fund, some began to call it. And so this, in, in many ways, changed U.S. environmental policy forever. But I think the lessons that are more salient to most people have nothing to do with policy and everything to do with process. You know, it wasn't one poor decision that led to the problems in this neighborhood. It was a litany of poor decisions, some big, some small, some public, some private, committed by multiple agencies and entities over the course of years and decades that led to the problems in this neighborhood. And equally, it wasn't one protest or one march or one angry phone call or letter that turned the tide in the neighborhood. It was a concerted fight for two years. And so, you know, I think, you know, the, the lesson and the instructive lesson of, of, the, of the fight in Love Canal and the fight at the core of, of Paradise Falls, my book, is, is 
is that it takes a legion of people uh, fighting every day to, to, to get the changes they want in the world. And, and that, I think, is a very relevant lesson uh, for the times we're living in today. Keith, thank you so much for, for joining me. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. My guest today is Keith O'Brien. His book is Paradise Falls, The True Story of an Environmental Catastrophe. It's published by Pantheon, a division of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. New science is offering new approaches for innovative treatments for Alzheimer's, Parkinson's dementia, and other neurodegenerative diseases. Today, one such approach has entered late-stage human clinical trials. Dr. Mark Litton is the president and CEO of Athera Pharma. Well, Mark, welcome back to Biotech Nation. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Athera already has uh, a drug in phase two and phase three human drug trials. That's in the phase one, two, three drug approval trifecta, as I call it. Um, And so now this is becoming very real. How is what you are doing, what Athera Pharma is doing, different from the other approaches to treating or arresting the progression of Alzheimer's? Our approach is all focused on essentially using a naturally occurring repair mechanism that the body uses every day to restore one's nerve cells. And we like to talk of ourselves as we're focused on the cells. And Alzheimer's is a a really good example where it really is a breakdown in the communication of these nerve cells. It's all about the connections, what we call synapses. And in Alzheimer's, Right. This is a disease that slowly they lose all their connections over time. And these synapses go away and the nerve cells go away. And by using this naturally occurring repair mechanism, or what we call the HGF system, we're able to hopefully restore and repair these connections. And we believe sort of our small molecules, that our small molecules enhance this HGF biology. Now, I did some homework, and I read that there's 100 million neurons in our brains and 1,000 trillion synapses connecting them. Now, how much do they have to degrade before you get Alzheimer's? Well, it's, it's a fair question. So if you look at the disease state of Alzheimer's, it's essentially you, you lose about 20% of these synapses. Um, now, I, I would also like people to know is that your, your brain really is plastic and that it, it can repair. For example, people have strokes, they get better over time in some cases. And we really believe that you have this injury, which is going on in Alzheimer's, and you're losing these synapses. And we're hopeful that we can repair them. Now, as I understand it, there's HGF all over your body. If you read about any condition of an organ, it could be the liver, it could be cardiovascular. Frequently, you'll find this HGF. So it's all over the place. And you need the HGF, you know, going into the cell to 
just to kickstart, if you will, the natural repair mechanism that's inside a cell, no different than in the brain. And in the case of Alzheimer's, I understand that both HGF can be measured, that it's an, it's been reduced, but also the receptor in the brain cell, which takes it up, is reduced. Yes, we do know that the HGF and its receptor have been, been reduced in, in Alzheimer's patients. So one theory is, is that you've got to get that repair mechanism in place again, both not just giving HGF, but also somehow repairing or, or enabling that receptor to work. Yeah, and, and one could almost think of it as wound healing, right? As we know, wound healing um, over time, as we get older, gets slower and slower. One could also see that that's the same thing that happens in, in Alzheimer's. And one of the key um, aspects of our platform and our technology is identifying and discovering these small molecules that cross the blood vein barrier. Because in your body, of course, HGF is floating around and it lasts seconds, if not minutes. So first and foremost is it, it doesn't last very long in your body. And one of the things that people have tried for many years is to find a molecule that enhances this and it crosses the blood vein barrier. And that's exactly what our lead molecule and our platform does with Fosgonamintin. Now Fosgo. We call Fosgo. I was going to say, I call it Fosgo. I looked at that and went, that's never going to fly on the radio. But <laughs> you got to say it once, but it's Fosgo. <laughs> and now uh, I know you're in, in the phase two, phase three trials, but I'm very interested in how you even begin to test this. And let's talk about Fosgo. Uh, what was the first test? You know, we always start in phase one. How did that work? What did you measure? Yes. So we, you start with phase one. And so let's go back to the concept that the brain is a network of cells all interacting together. Um, and one way that we look at the brain is to measure the electrical current of the brain because all of these cells connecting create a current. And the other thing that we can do, if we combine measuring the electrical current and we combine that with a, an auditory signal, we can actually measure the speed of how well the brain is working or processing information. And so we've utilized a test. It's not our test. This is a test that's been around for, for many years. And it's called the event-related potential P300 test. Needs a new name, new name. But what does it do? <laughs> so this is a test that the subject has a skull cap that's measuring the electrical current and they're wearing headphones so they can listen to a series of tones. And there's a series of tones interspaced with an odd tone. And then they're asked to count the odd tone. And so the computer can actually measure how fast it takes them to one recall the odd tone and begin counting. And, and normal healthy people, it's about 300 milliseconds and that's why it's called P300. Interestingly enough, as we get demented and as we progress in Alzheimer's, the time it takes to actually count and listen to that odd tone gets longer and longer. And so when we did a small study, it was 11 subjects, mild to moderate Alzheimer's patients, they, on average, with their P300 test, was 390 milliseconds, so almost 100 milliseconds longer than a normal individual. 
And what we found after eight, only eight days of treatment with Fosco is there was a dramatic improvement in their brain processing speed. And they went down to essentially 317 milliseconds. So on average, a 73 millisecond improvement on their brain processing speed. Were there also people uh, who were taking placebo, healthy volunteers? Absolutely. This was a placebo blinded control trial. There were seven people on the FOSGO and four people on placebo. And in the placebo arm, they did not show an improvement in their P300. Okay. So we know we're getting it in there and we know we're seeing some improvement. Now you said earlier, small molecule. We just have, you know, working on this drug, small molecule. Usually we leap to, oh, uh, we'll make it a pill. Everybody loves pills, but you have it as an injection. Why is that? Yes. So this is a, an injection that can be, um, it's done daily and it's really, um, done for mostly compliance sake in the fact that when you get an injection, you know, the person has been given the, the potential therapy as opposed to sometimes in this population, they have hard time remembering if they took their pills or maybe they take many pills and it's never quite easy. And of course, this is mild to moderate. So most of these patients have caregivers. So really uh, this strategy is more for compliance so that we can ensure that the patients get FOSGO. Okay, so you're like, oh, well, this is great news. You know, we're seeing this increase. We know it's being taken up. And now you're moving into uh, phase two and phase three. In fact, those are happening at the same time. Tell us about the smaller phase two study. What's that about and what are you checking there? Yes. So the the phase two study is ACT-AD. It has 77 subjects in it. Again, mild to moderate Alzheimer's patients, very similar to our phase one B. And We're also looking at, so in the smaller study, we only looked at it for eight days, but we're now looking at it for six months. And we want to see if we can repeat what we saw with the P300 test over six months. But in addition to that, we'd like to look at what's really important is these psychometric measurements. Now, the trial, this smaller trial is not statistically powered to see a a difference of these psychometric measurements, but we're, we're hopeful to see some trends and, and trends looking at whether it's cognition or the way the physicians are seeing the improvement or how the caregiver is assessing how the, these subjects um, are doing with their independence. Now, there are three kinds of tests that I know you're looking at in this phase two study. The first is cognition. How, what is cognition and how do you measure it? Yes. So cognition is, um, has to do with memory and language. And there, this test we use is called the ATIS COG 11, or just to be clear, these are a lot of, you know, nomenclature, but it's the Alzheimer's disease assessment scale. And it was developed in the eighties and it was really developed to understand the level of decline in cognition for these Alzheimer's patients. It it has become the gold standard. Um, The FDA uses this test. Many, many of the Alzheimer's trials have used this test. And it essentially is testing word recall, naming objects, following commands, 
I mean, and it's a score of zero to 70, 70 being the most severe impaired. Ah, and so you're trying to see, like, you're giving them three words, and then you're trying to see if they can repeat the three words? Correct. And perhaps later, and you know, so a delay of time and that type of thing. I see. So I, I understand a test like that. The next one are, are activities of daily living and independence. What, what are those? Yes, yeah, so this is another this is another test that is done by the caregiver to assess how well the subject is doing with this with his or her independence. And this is a series of questions that are asking about eating, dressing, bathing, cooking, um, how maybe shopping, right? Really is just to better understand the independence of the subject. Yeah. If you're brushing your teeth or you're not brushing your teeth. That's correct. It's really, these seem very simple, but they all aim toward independence. Can you live independently without someone overseeing you? Uh, and then the final one is behavioral testing. What does that mean in terms of Alzheimer's? Yeah. So the, the final one is, a is an assessment done by the clinician and it's, um, it's called the Clinical Impression of Change, or CIGIC, as we call it. And it, it's essentially the clinician understanding how well the patient is doing. And it's a measurement of one to seven. Uh, one would indicate there's an improvement. Seven would indicate there's worsening. And four is no change. And each of these three are all used to better understand how our, our molecule might be clinically beneficial for, for these subjects. In fact, this assessment by the physician covers many different aspects, and it's really looking at how well are they having a conversation, how well are they anxious, um, and it's just assess at, at each time point of you know, where, where the patient is at that point. And let me just remind everybody that it's really scary Alzheimer's is a scary disease and, and, you know, your orientation, where you are, who you are talking to, um, it can be scary for the individual. This phase two with the 77 patients, are they also getting the hearing test? The 77 patients are getting the hearing test. Yes. The P300 test so that we're looking to see how that does over six months. And they're also getting these psychometric measurements so that we, while not powered to show statistical difference, we can begin to understand what this new approach is doing to, to help these folks with Alzheimer's, mild to moderate Alzheimer's. Now, I don't think you have to be a rocket scientist to figure out, normally we do phase two, and after that we do a phase three. With Vosgo, you started phase three already with many more patients. Now, now, tell us how it's different and tell us how phase two relates to phase three. So we're taking a little unique strategy. So there's been many, many examples when people look at interim data of phase three and it's sort of unclear. Like early data, like a quarter of the way in, something like that. Correct. And, and sometimes it looks good. Sometimes it doesn't look good. You lose statistical power. And so we took a strategy of let's do a separate, complete study. They all have the same criteria. They all have mild to moderate um, Alzheimer's. And that we would use this smaller study to help us with the large phase three study. Because the readout, which is coming um, in Q2 this year for, for the smaller study, will help us. It can teach us so that we can 
ensure a better successful outcome for the larger phase three study. So the trials are the exact same in terms of their layout. The ACT, AD, which is the small phase two, has two doses of FOSGO, 70 and 40 milligram, and a placebo. And in addition, the LIFT, ACT, which is our phase three study, has exactly the same three groups. Now, in the phase three study, the big study, you're not doing hearing tests. We're not doing hearing tests. We are dealing with the most important aspect is hopefully looking at cognition or the activities of daily living or the clinician's scale. And the FDA, when we met with the FDA, there was, we need to choose two of those three. We will choose ADIS-COG-11, which is the, the gold standard of cognition. And then we need to choose whether it's the clinician score, which it probably will be, or the activities of daily living. And that's those two different ones. And that choice is what we're going to learn in ACT, the phase two study. Ah, so that's, see, that was the first time I understood. They're not looking, they don't want to see all your data. You got to choose a subset of the data you're collecting. That's very interesting. Why would they do that? Well, so here's the thing. As we know, Alzheimer's is very complicated. This is a totally new approach, repairing these connections. And we don't really know how well this is going to happen have a benefit. And so we got to look at each of these different domains and understand, okay, well, where, where is this potentially being beneficial? So today we don't know. And that's why we're asking all these different things. So let's say, let's hope this works. Would this replace other Alzheimer's treatments? So right now, the way we're running our trials is it's an add-on therapy. And that means that participants can have standard of care and we just add our FOSGO to that. You know, I do want to say one thing which may have occurred to people who were listening earlier. And it's this question of for the hearing test, which I think it's fascinating. It's like, oh, wait a minute, what do you mean you have this cap on and you're measuring brain currents? If you've had any kind of brain injury, if you've had, they're trying to measure epilepsy or this is a very, it's been comp for decades. They're able to do that and they're trying to see, are there anomalies in the brain current? So that portion of it, that measurement portion of it is actually very settled. You aren't doing anything on toward there or new there in that sense. No, and we're really not. I mean, people have described it like what you do with EKG to measure your heart. It's very similar. P300 is another test that just assesses the health or the connections and how fast your brain is processing. And it's something that cannot be faked. It's everybody has it. And um, it's just an interesting measurement. It is what it is. Now, if you give FOSCO to healthy volunteers who start out with this 300 millisecond, can they get faster? The answer is no, unfortunately not. We, 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 <laughs> Darn. we're not making superhumans. Um, <laughs> yes, no. So it, it does not have any effect. Really, most of the time, this mechanism is recurring from an injury, right? So there's a healing of it. It's not making it better. Now, I understand that you're also working on dementia in Parkinson's, Parkinson's dementia. What are you doing there? So we're, we're, again, we've started a phase two trial, which is called SHAPE. And we're looking at, again, 
testing and, and looking at FOSGO in this patient population because roughly about 50% of Parkinson's patients suffer from um, impairment in cognition. Where else can uh, FOSGO, or I know you have some other compounds, I can see it, where else might it help in terms of medical conditions? So we're, we're looking at a broad range of neurological diseases using the concept of just repairing or restoring nerve cells. One of the places where we've, we, we just showed preclinically um, that it might have a benefit is in schizophrenia. And another place that we are looking at, and it might have a benefit, is in depression. And these are, this is, we have another molecule, which is ATH1020, that just entered phase one this week. And so we're looking at that. That's oral, so it's not with an injectable. Um, and we continue to explore various areas where if there's been an injury to the nerve cell, that um, repairing it might be beneficial. Well, it's, it's fascinating because there's no doubt that if you've had an injury or genetically or however it worked, your cell isn't working properly, just returning it to working properly could be the solution to the entire problem. Well, we'll see. We're very hopeful. And... Again, it, it's all about the science and just taking another step forward in, in understanding what's going on in a, in a very complex place. I mean, neurological diseases are, have not been given all the insight that, say, oncology has been given. So we're hopeful that we're going to take a little bit step. And, and once we learn from that, then we make some improvements and, and we create another improvement. Well, Mark, this has been terrific. I hope you come back and uh, see us again. Keep us filled in. Moyer, the pleasure is mine. Always, always fun to talk to you. Dr. Mark Litton is the president and CEO of Athera Pharma. More information is available on the web at athera.com. That's A-T-H-I-R-A, athera.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.